the end of the day, gold and silver and what Basel's just done, and it looks like what Russia's trying to do to follow it, is, is almost move back to a gold standard. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics. On another week in the gold and silver markets, I have slipped down into my gold mine because we have some interesting news out in the gold market just a week after Basel III and all the developments that are happening in the midst of a global hyperinflation campaign. So today I am quite fortunate to be joined by Alan Pangborn of Chesapeake Gold, who has quite an interesting situation he's found himself in these days, especially when you combine that with what is happening with Basel III central banks and money printing galore. So Alan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show for the first time, although welcome on in. And how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Chris, and nice to meet you. And thanks for the invite. Well, I appreciate you being here. You have quite a background, so it's going to be great to get your opinion on some of these things that are going on, uh, what might be happening with gold in Basel III, what it's looking like on the supply side. We dig into the silver supply quite a bit, but it'll be great to get your perspective on gold. And uh, perhaps just to get things started here, we did have Basel III last week, which you and I were talking about a bit before we hit the record button. And then just one week after that, we have a story that came out on Monday, Russian finance ministry to buy 4 billion worth of gold in July. So an increase in the amount of daily operations. And again, Alan, there's, it's hard to know for sure what's happening because we have central banks that, you know, don't really go out of their way to tell you, but seems like you've been following a lot of these developments and I'm curious, anything Basel three, do you think Russia, this could be any, any way related or what would you make out of all of this? Interesting question. I haven't seen the Russian article, but that, that certainly gives the opportunity to think through what's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I guess at the moment, the issue you've really got is the US is printing dollars like there's no tomorrow. And several of the other economies are doing the same thing in the Western world as we go through the COVID crisis and hopefully come out the other end intact. Um, but the Russians seem to be obviously pushing a gold standard again. And that's really interesting when you think about how much gold is traded, Basel three pushing to the point where unless it's assigned, you can't keep it on your balance sheet. So how do the traders and the, and the banks account for their gold when it's, when it's free trading rather than assigned? Um, and all of that comes together to a situation of what happens to the US dollar and what happens conversely to the gold and silver prices as at the end of the day, gold and silver and what Basel's just done and it looks like what Russia's trying to do to follow it is, is almost moved back to a gold standard. Yeah, and I'll pull up something here that came out recently from someone who is quite well known. Here's Hugo Salinas Price suggesting that Bank for International Settlement caves into Russia and China care to even venture a guess of who's putting what metaphorical gun to who else's head uh, or, or what could possibly be happening or where do you, how you see it playing out? 
I, I think that probably plays into the comment I just made. What, what becomes the world currency? You know, you can't just keep printing US dollars until the cows come home. And the Western world during COVID has been doing that and giving money away to stimulate an economy. Um, how do you keep doing that? When the US dollar is the only reserve currency in the world, how do you, where do you go? You know, you see it every, everybody runs to safety to the US dollar, but the US dollar printing presses are running hot. And so you, you start to wonder, well, what's going to replace it? You know, I think the move with Russia and China is really a hard push to almost go back to the gold standard, use that as the basis for their currency, something solid, because there isn't a clear, obvious currency to go to as the world reserve currency. It's the US dollar now. Prior to that, it used to be the British pound back in the days of the great British empire and all that good stuff, rah, rah. Yeah, and then before that, it was the Dutch. And before that, I'm sure it was somebody else and somebody else. But where do you go today? The US dollar is printing like crazy. They don't have enough gold reserve to support their currency value. Basel III has made it that the only, the only precious metals that count are those that are physically named to somebody, yeah? Whereas that's a fraction of the current precious metal market. So where does it all go? And, you know, that article you just pulled up tends to suggest that Russia and China in particular have been putting pressure on Basel and, and the other banks around the world to allow gold to become almost the gold standard again. And so are we going back to where we were, I don't know how long ago, 50, 70 years ago, where currencies were pegged to gold reserves and silver reserves? Interesting times, definitely interesting times. I know what you mean, and that's what I've wondered. I get it. A lot of people were expecting the price of gold and silver to skyrocket the first week of Basel III, but when you think about how, whether we know what we're going to next or not, it seems clear we're getting close to the end of the road. You, you said, how much longer can they print the dollars? So it seems like something has to break. And usually when these things unravel, whoever has the most leverage gets to call the shots. And in a world where paper currencies have been debased, unlike possibly any point in history, that's what makes the need for gold and silver and precious metals even more valuable. We, keep, we continue seeing that central banks are buying gold. Now, all of a sudden, Basel cares about gold. So I wonder, do you think 50 years from now, we're looking back at Basel III, similar to a collapse of the London gold pool coming out of the late 60s, or even something like a Bretton Woods? Maybe it'll be gradual. Maybe it'll take a couple months or a couple of years. But do you think that that's, we've basically reached that point of something to that effect? I, that, that's that's a, a, an interesting question. It's difficult to try and project, project that far ahead, but I certainly think you're looking at a transition. Yeah, the US is no longer the only economic power in the world and China, right. I mean, certainly China, and I'm, I'm sure Russia would like to be included in that group too want to regain some of their status and want to become 
one of the major powers in the world if they're not already. Um, you know, I think, again, if you look at the transitions before, they tend to take quite a long time. Then it's not like, oh, they passed Basel III and, and gold goes to the stars and, and the US dollar turns into the next version of the Zimbabwean dollar. It, it, it never really happens that fast unless there's a significant event in the country that just debases everything. And that happens sometimes, but generally with a reserve currency, if you look at the, the British pound to US dollar transition or the Dutch to the British, it, it took 50 years or more, I don't know. Yeah, so it's, it's not something that you click your fingers and we've gone from no longer using the US dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, the pound still carries some weight today amongst all the currencies in the world, just as much as the euro does. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a gradual thing. And it's, I think it's one of those things where you wake up five years later and you look back and you go, how the hell did we get here? And, and then you realize, oh, jeez, everything's changed. We're in a different world. It's no longer US centric, it's China centric. You know, some say that China's missed its opportunity. They're getting too old too quick. They don't have that younger generation behind them because of the one child policy. Who knows? Who knows? But, 50 years is a long time. Although it makes sense what you're pointing out. And I do my best to take a step back and not need to guess which day X or Y happens, but you can <laughs> see the way the trend is going here for obvious reasons, like you pointed out with the money printing that is, is just staggering, especially because they're only talking about how much they're good. They want to print faster tomorrow, which brings to the question of the gold supply. Okay. Doesn't seem shocking to me. You have Putin talking about a couple of months ago, he was railing on the Rothschild dollar. I mean, if anyone ever listens to the guy talk, he's not a big fan of American politics. Doesn't seem to be a fan of this, the federal reserve. Okay, they're buying more gold now. God only knows how much they're buying beneath the surface. And at the rate of money printing, I mean, fine, maybe they send politicians out to try and con the people into selling their gold. But it doesn't seem like the demand for gold, the underlying reason is going to go away anytime soon. And perhaps uh, it'd be great to, if you can dig into what we're seeing on the gold supply side. Although even a step before you do that, maybe you could just give a quick rundown of your background so that people could be aware of the things that you have seen and done, because uh, I think that'll help uh, as you dig into the supply. Sure. Um, I'm a metallurgist by profession. I've spent my entire career in the mining industry. Um, I've either built stuff or fixed it. So, you know, most recently, for a short period of time, I was a CEO at Guyana Goldfields, and they got into trouble and we ended up selling it to the Chinese. Prior to that, I spent five years with SSR Mining, which previously was Silver Standard, used to have massive silver reserves sitting in the ground. Um, and then we started developing and moving between gold and silver as we moved forward. Prior to that, I was actually in BHP for a long time, 15 years or something like that, building stuff. I was building large projects around the world, predominantly in South America. Um, and prior to that, I was back in the gold and silver space operating gold mines when I was young. Um, 
I think, like I said, I'm a metallurgist by profession, spent my entire career in the industry, now head up Chesapeake, which had a very, very large silver and gold resource in, in Mexico, which we plan to develop, which we'll talk about later, probably. Yeah. Um, so that's a bit about my background. Sorry, I've forgotten the question now. Well, the, the add-on to that is that based on, you know, you've seen this, a variety of different countries, you clearly have a, a handle on, on the geopolitics as well. So at $1,800 gold in this environment where we're seeing central bank buying reason to conceivably expect more central bank buying, what does the supply demand profile look like at the current $1,800 price? The interesting with gold and the interesting thing with gold and silver, there are very few massive projects. And there's a plethora of little, little projects. Yeah, that might, they, they struggle to get to a million ounces of total reserves. Yeah. And the big projects generally have been developed by the bigger producers, the barracks, the new mods, people like that. And you know, you've seen them back away from these mega projects recently, probably because they've had a couple of disasters um, that didn't quite go so well for them. And so you can see a lack of production. There's, there's, there's no, you know, tell me who's going to come online and produce half a million ounces a year, and they've got five or six of those in the road to do. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, and you're also... A lot of the easy ones, you know, the Yanacochas of the world that were built or Pierina, not Pierina, uh, Las Gunas Norte, you know, which were massive, massive gold producers at one stage and now producing 20% of what they used to produce if, if they're even still producing. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of gold and silver is slowly switching back towards byproduct production. So you're looking at the copper mines. And even the copper mines, who's been building big copper mines lately with large byproduct credits? Nobody. Yeah, very, very few. Yeah, you know, one of the last big ones was, was Spence in Chile. They built their hypergene project that has some gold and silver, but not a lot. Yeah, some of the others in Indonesia, you know, where do you want to go? You then start getting into supply issues. Peru's just elected a free left-wing government. Chile's, Chile's looking interesting is probably not the right adjective, but different, yeah. You know, a, a left-leaning wave is, seems to be coming through South America again. Um, and when you overlay that into copper, gold, and silver, the impacts could be horrible even in Mexico, yeah? So, you know, production supply side is questionable. You're seeing more and more bank buying of a smaller and smaller limited reserve to be able to do it. And then they pass Basel three, which basically writes off the paper trading that's been going on. So what does that do for the metal price? When you've got more people wanting to buy than there are sellers or supply, what do you do? 
Well, that's why I think the price, one of the reasons why I think the price is going to have to go higher. And it's interesting as you were pointing that out, there's really a floor under the gold price, both on the demand side and the supply side in a sense, because with a lot of these projects just harder to find gold, hmm. it's a little bit of a floor there. And then the floor on the demand side is that someone can explain how we're not going to get more money printing. That's only thing they know how to do is to double down. So I get it. You know, people like seeing things move and, uh, you know, more so on the silver side than gold. I mean, it's interesting. I read these reports that we've had uh, 40% of the dollars that are in existence right now printed in the last year, yet we've actually seen gold fall. It was $2,000 last July. And it's even lower now, which I think will be taken care of in due time. Although, Alan, based on all that, I have an interesting question for you here. Let's say we wake up in the next year with a $2,500 gold price. Given the mania that we see in the way people in the West buy when the price is going up on momentum, I mean, we got a snippet of that when silver cracked through $30 for a couple of hours earlier this year. So on one hand, you would think, all right, well, if the gold price goes up, some more projects come online, which, you know, there was some truth to that. Yet I wonder, could you actually have the gold price go to $2,500 or $3,000 an ounce and have less available supply? Because then mainstream people are, are piling in, realizing, hey, wait a second, something's going on here. These guys may not have it under control after all. Is that possible? I, you know, the, the other thing you have to remember, if, if you get a big spike in demand, the reaction time of the miners is slow. It is really slow. And bringing on a mega project, you know, the likes of Yanacocha or Oscunas Norte or some of these other ones that were very large in Peru in the last decade, takes years and years to actually see them happen. Um, because first, once you're a producer, it doesn't matter where the price goes, you keep producing until you don't make money. Right. And only then, and even then, you see examples of where people will cross subsidize between mines, cross subsidize between metals, because the closure costs are so high. And so they don't want to shut down. And so they keep producing. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they tend to be very conservative when it comes to a construction decision and go into operations. And so they, they, they really look at how low could it go. So it takes a long time for them to sit there and go, okay, my new base for silver is 25, 35, $45, $50 an ounce for my project economics, because I'm gonna be in business for 50, 100 years, hopefully. Yeah, and at that way, rate, what do you do? Nobody can tell me what the gold price is gonna be in 100 years from now. Yeah, and so, so there's, there's an inherent conservatism some of the places that these mines are are um, not exactly the most stable economies you've ever seen. Yeah, governments don't like you making massive profits, and they they want their piece too, and so they always head for the same thing, which hurts the most, which is the royalty streams. Yeah, not just taxes, but they go after primary cash flow measures and, and hit you that way, which is great when the metal price is going up, really hurts when it comes back down again. 
and and so you know it, it it's it's hard to work out where more production would react to a price going up it does eventually people get more and more aggressive on their pricing and eventually that triggers the projects but even once you trigger a project a decent sized development by decent size i mean something bigger than what we're doing but when you get up into the the bigger sizes the yanacochas the Lascunas Nortes, the Barrack, all of the Barrack mines in Nevada. None of those were built phase one, full size, day one. None of them, right? And so they built a little one and then added and added and added and added as the economics supported it. But even then, to go from PEA to pre-feasibility study, to feasibility study, to construction, to actual production, the best I've seen is eight to 10 years, eight to 10 years. What does the, the demand side do in the meantime? You can bring on a little 100,000 ounce a year producer in a couple of years, and you see that all the time, the junior end of the market. Yeah, but if you, if you want another million ounces of gold or 500 million ounces of silver or something like that, don't hold your breath because you'll go very blue in the face. It takes a long time. Yeah, and uh, only God could probably calculate how many dollars Janet Yellen and the gang could print in eight to 10 years. Although, <laughs> fortunately, uh, even though I'm down here in Mexico, rather than having to go out on my own and find all that gold and silver, it seems like you've been kind enough to take your years of knowledge. And it's actually quite nice for me to, you know, we have a lot of folks on the show that all have great expertise, but when you have the, the, the geological side and the geopolitics and the finance, I think helps to make some good decisions. And it's pretty impressive what you've been doing over at Chesapeake. So perhaps you could let folks know a bit about how you have a nice, uh, nice resource there. And also you've been using some technology that you've acquired from your background and skills and perhaps you could uh, give folks a rundown of what they're looking at at Chesapeake. Sure. So um, where shall I start? I guess the, the reserve and resource. It is a very, very large resource sitting in Mexico in Durango, which is one of the better places to be. Um, the 2P in the last, um, the last study that was put out, which was a pre-feasibility study in 2000, six i think it was um was was over 18 million ounces of gold and over 500 million ounces of silver um so you know very very large reserve and resource and so you know that that gives you the underlying asset to build something on um it's been known quite a long time and and we bring a different technology a different approach to starting it um, we're looking at a much smaller starter project and then expand up as and when you can build it out. And, you know, it's interesting because that's not an, that's quite an old approach to the problem. Lots of people used to do that. And then for some reason, probably about 10 or 15 years ago, they started planning these massive single build as big as you can build it day one. That's great. 
if you're a BHP or a Newmont or a Barrick and you've got billions of dollars on your balance sheet, if you're a smaller company like we are, we can't afford to build a $3 billion project. Yeah, and so we, we've, we've brought a technology along that allows us to actually heat leach sulfides. We're gonna start a lot smaller, focus on a higher grade portion of the ore body and get going. And then once we get going, expand once, expand twice, just keep expanding until you get bored with expanding um, and, and build it that way and build out the reserve and the resource that's there at Chesapeake. So massive reserve and resource. The new technology is interesting. It's a way to heat leach sulfide ore bodies. Um, and, and it really comes from the copper business. The copper business has been heat leaching secondary sulfides for well, I built one of the largest single build SXEW plants in 2006 in Chile. That was one of the largest sulfide heat leaches that ever been built. Nobody's built one bigger than that as a single build since then. And it's the same concept. You heat leach the sulfides, oxidize them in the heat leach, and then get the gold and silver. In our case, we start alkali, so in high pHs, use cyanide the same as you do today in a heat leach. And you literally turn gray rock into brown rock. Yeah, so you turn the, the sulfides, which are usually gray rock, into that nice brown rock you've got at the back there. Once it's brown like that, it's generally oxidized, and then you can get the gold and the silver. And so that's what we're planning to do, starting up at a smaller size, expand once, expand twice, expand until I get fed up with expanding. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's a unique approach. It certainly unlocks value earlier in the piece because we can go in small and then expand. And it's actually quite an old approach to doing these projects. If you go back in history and you look at how some of the bigger mining companies started, they often started, Escondido, the copper project in Chile, started as a single stage, small project and has expanded it's gone from 40,000 tons a day to over 250,000 tons a day now. So it gives you some idea of just this expand, 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 until you, until you maximize the value of the ore body. And that's what we plan to do with Matadis. Got a couple of really powerful shareholders. Eric Sprott is a big holder of ours. And, and so is Sun Valley, which is Peter Palmetto. And you put those two together with management, we control over 40% of the company. And so, you know, we've got a very clear path going forward of what we want to do, how we want to do it, and how long it's going to take us. And we're just working forward to get there. Thank you. That helps. Yeah, everybody yeah. always likes to see the share structure. And Alan, I, I mean, maybe to some people it'll sound simple, although what you were, you've just been describing is one of the things that stood out to me as I was watching some of your other videos where something I've been forced to learn leaving a corporate and going into an entrepreneur where there's just benefit to getting something up and running because it's like if you try and you know, say I'm going to scale the whole mountain today, yeah, on paper, it sounds great, but we're humans, you know, and we're, we're trying to incorporate other people that maybe don't always have the vision. And I just think there's a lot to be said for, especially when you have a good plan in place, getting the parts rolling. And I think that also makes it easier for investors to get on board as well. I think it, it's easier for everybody. It's just a much lower risk profile. 
And when you've got a massive resource like there is at Matatis, you can grow into it. Yeah, nobody gets up at nine o'clock in the morning, walks out the front door and goes, I'm going to run a marathon. Nobody gets up and says, I'm going to climb Everest, right? They do it little by little by little by little. They learn on the way and they get it right and then expand, get it right, then expand. You know, it, you, you've got to be really brave or stupid, take your pick, to, to try and build, you know, a billion ton deposit and the largest mine possible in one go. You know, one of the things that, that working inside BHP taught me was when you're in a large mining company and you've got a lot of support, even they, yeah, even they haven't built Olympic Dam expansion, which was going to be humongous because the risk profile scares you. And so you do it a little bit at a time. Yep. And it's the same with Metatis. It was the same with Escondida. They built the first size project, the size they did because of political risk. We're building it because of a mixture of all sorts of other risks. How do you keep the impact down of those risks? Start small, understand them, then grow. You can always expand. It's really hard to shrink. Oh. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And one question I like to ask a lot of the uh, companies that we have on, I find is helpful for people. If we had a scale of zero to 10, where zero, we're out with a shovel and a metal detector, 10 were in production. Can you put into context really where you are on that spectrum so people can know exactly the, the stage of the project you're at? The analogy I like to use is we've gone elephant hunting. We found the elephant, we shot it, it's dead. I know where it is, I know how big it is, and I know what it is. We're, we're at that stage of what is the best way to cut it up? Right? I don't want to get indigestion. I don't want to blow my brains out by going too big too soon. Yeah, so we're at the stage and we believe we've got a process now and a, promote, a approach where we can step into it and then expand up. So I don't define the ore body. Yeah, the ore body is there. 18 million ounces of silver and over 500 million ounces, sorry, 18 million ounces of gold, over 500 million ounces of silver is a significant ore body. We believe with the technology, we've got a way that we can step into it at a smaller size and then start expanding up. So we're expecting to produce a, a study in the next few weeks. It really is that close. Hopefully before the end of the month, the study will come out. Um, and and that will show why we're so excited about the way we're approaching this project, step into it, and then expand up. And then about a year later, once we've got all the test work done, we'll produce a, a pre-feasibility study. And yes, I am going to produce a proper feasibility study at the end of it. You know, in, in my background, I've either been building them or fixing them. And I'll tell you one thing, it's a lot easier to build them right than fixing them afterwards. Yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go for the build it right, which means you actually do all the steps you should do and don't skip them, yeah? And you know, a feasibility study is, this is what I'm gonna build, and I've done all the work behind it, so as I can walk out the door and build it. Not walk out the door and redo the study because I didn't get the answer I wanted. 
Yeah, I should already know roughly what the answer is when I do the feasibility study. So, you know, we'll do it right. It may take us a year longer, but the alternative is really messy. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really nice to hear it. It just seems as if the stage you're at, that your particular skill set is the right match for what you're doing which uh, is one of the things that really uh, catches my eye these days. And Alan, perhaps uh, if there are any, uh, any other bullets that you feel people should know as well as how they can get in contact with any questions they have and, and how can they reach you guys? Sure, I mean, the easiest way to reach us is through our website. Um, all, of the, uh, all of the questions and emails that come in on that website eventually come through to us. Um, We'll obviously start going back to some of the uh, conferences when they get going again. And hopefully the first one will be Beaver Creek down in, uh, down in Colorado in September, I think it is. Um, you know, we've still, got, we've still got travel restrictions up here in Canada and it's not so much getting out. Getting out's easy, it's getting back in. So. <laughs> So, you know, that sort of slows us down a bit, but we'll continue to be involved in various conferences and more than happy to have meetings with anybody who's interested. Um, you know, I guess the important thing is this, this story has been quiet. Not a lot of people remember it, but it's a massive resource and reserve. Um, and we've got a way to unlock it. And that's what we're going to do. Well, it's going to be fun to follow along. Uh, I got to meet Tej from your team, and it just seems like you have an impressive bunch of uh, folks associated with it. So I uh, thank you for sharing some time with me today, talking about the gold market as well as what you guys are doing, and certainly look forward to staying, uh, staying posted on your success. Thank you, Chris. Have a good day.